Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you want to learn more about what it's like to work as a customer success manager in the tech industry, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest spent over a decade in tech in a variety of roles, eventually becoming a global manager of customer success at Salesforce and later at one of the world's largest fully automated platforms to help top brands like Nordstrom, Instacart, and Priceline root out fraud in their e-commerce transactions. But before I introduce you to Jennifer Brick, I want to make sure you signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features unique firsthand career insights and advice into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Jennifer who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time. The number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my cappuccino quaffing customer service lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jennifer Britt, also known nowadays on YouTube and LinkedIn as your career bestie. After climbing the career ladder, mostly in customer service roles at companies in the tech industry, Jennifer discovered her true purpose in life was to actually help people succeed at work in any industry. So in 2019, she started a YouTube channel that focuses on everything from navigating career advancement to dealing with coworker drama and getting over a toxic job. And haven't we all been there? Today, Jennifer's YouTube videos have made this career bestie a top channel for career success and advancement with over 100,000 subscribers and climbing. She's also the author of a fantastic new book called Career Glow Up to help ambitious career women build their success confidence and successfully build their career success wherever they decide to go. And it is a friggin' awesome book. Jennifer, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinating, caffeinated, and I'm so excited and delighted to be here with you, Andrea. Well, we should tell our listeners, Jennifer, that I am a huge fan of your LinkedIn content, which is how I first got to know you and your brand and your work as a coach and creator. And beyond being an incredibly entertaining creator, it is also real as fuck, which <laughs> is why I wanted you to, to bring you on this show, because yeah. like me, you don't mince words. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, you know, I, I didn't realize that we had not actually connected on LinkedIn because I had been following you for so long. <laughs> and I know that we've like had so many conversations on your posts and my posts. And I love your content because you tell it exactly how it is. And I think that your content helps people in a way that, you know, I wrote a book for my younger self, but I needed your posts to be ready for the book, you know? Because there's so many options when you're starting out in your career. And I love the way that you show people that, you know, you can make different decisions. There's all of these different pathways that we can explore, which is a big vibe of mine of success is whatever we choose and define it to be and choose to explore. But it's also not a one-way corridor, right? We can like, you had massive career changes, just like how I have. And I think it's so inspiring for people because I think that 
one of the biggest pressures that I felt early in my career was I had to choose. Like I had to choose a direction and I had to go with it. That was what you were supposed to do. But you don't have to do that, especially now. So I love, I'm such a fan of yours. Like I'm quite honestly fangirling to be here. <laughs> oh, well, listen, thank you. So we can have mutual fangirling here. <laughs> and I want our, our listeners and eventually our viewers to know that I have watched a bunch of your videos, Jennifer, and so many of the things that you tell viewers not to do, like gossip or badmouth their boss to coworkers or even make friends with coworkers and then confide in them as I have done over the years. I was like, why wasn't Jennifer around when I was a new grad trying to make it in the workplace? Because there are very few women mentors. Mm -hmm. So before we get into your amazing career advice gleaned from your own blood, sweat and tears, <laughs> I'd like to flashback, Jennifer, to when yeah. you were an undergrad. You went to Simon Fraser University in British Columbia in Canada, yep. where you majored in criminology. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very obvious that I ended up in the tech industry and now as a career success strategist. It's just, it's very fluid. Yeah, you can see the path, right? No. <laughs> very clear, very linear. There was no hiccups involved. No, so I, I fell in, into criminology. Like there wasn't many people in my program that decided, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a criminologist. Basically, there was two camps in criminology at SFU. There was the camp that were going to go on to become police officers. And then there was a the camp that was going to go to law school. And I believed that I was going to become a criminal defense attorney. That was the plan from the time I was six years old until I was 23. <laughs> so really? my... Yeah. So my criminology degree felt very relevant because especially in upper division, I got to do a lot of legal studies, human rights law, uh, international law. So it was really priming me for that, which was fantastic until I wrote the LSAT, submitted my law school applications and decided I don't want to be a lawyer. What happened? So I actually worked in a law firm for a year and it was a criminal defense attorney. He was a very well-known high stature attorney in Vancouver, Canada. And he was fantastic. Like he was such a phenomenal mentor for me. But the realities of criminal law, like there was the, that like expectations versus reality, like it kind of felt like a Pinterest post because I really felt like criminal defense was a way to help people in an inequitable system. But what I saw in the system was that that wasn't the best way to kind of navigate that. And I wasn't going to get to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. I really wanted to help people. That was actually like my goal in criminal defense law. There are certain elements of like the longer I worked there and, you know, we worked on some really contentious and like very sensitive cases. And I realized that the person that I was going to become wasn't the person that I wanted to be in order to do that job effectively. And to do it in a way that psychologically, emotionally, and physically at times protected myself. So it was when I moved to Ireland, I decided to take a gap year between graduating my criminology degree and going into law school. So I wrote the LSAT and like a week later, I hopped on the plane. And it was a week into my time at Dublin that I was like, I don't want to be stuck in BC. I don't want to be a criminal lawyer. OMG, what, what am I going to do with my life now? <laughs> So before we get into yeah. what you did with your life, yeah, let me ask you about what you were doing in university at Simon Fraser that helped you in hindsight actually prepare you for the working world when you started working, when you came back from Ireland. You mentioned working for that criminal defense attorney. I assume that was while you were an undergrad? Yeah, it was while I was in school. Okay. So was that like an internship or a part-time so job? It started as an internship. And then I took an extra year to complete my degree because I redid two classes to boost my GPA for my law school admission. You know, everything's about that application. So I ended up volunteering at his firm for the rest of for that year afterwards. So I, I had quite a bit of experience there. Yeah. Were there any other extracurriculars or side hustles, clubs? that you were involved in, Jennifer, that you think now actually may have helped you? You know, I had a lot of jobs when I was in university. It was really common. I don't know if it was common in my university in whole or if it was just a criminology student thing. But most of us were working part-time jobs, full-time jobs. I had a couple jobs at a time. 
So anything from making boxes, working at Winners, which is TJ Maxx in America. Um, I worked at Lululemon, which was super fun. <laughs> I worked in call centers. So I, I worked in a ton of different jobs, which it wasn't a formal extracurricular, obviously, with the school. But it gave me a lot of experience because it gave me a lot of perspective in different industries and different roles before I actually got to graduation. And without the pressure of, I need to do this for the rest of my life. Because every job that I had, I was just doing for right now. That said, there's two things that I thought I got out of my degree. And even if I'm not applying criminal theory every single day, which I do actually think has come full circle, but we'll get to that because I do see relevance to to it and what I do now, speaking of deviance. But there was two big things that I walked away with my degree that I think are so valuable. And I have leveraged throughout my career in my professional life, obviously, but also I think it's been really relevant in my personal life. So the first is that I don't know anything at all. (laughs) It was very much one of those degrees like social sciences. There's no firm answers. There's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of maybe this applies here. But the more answers that you get, the more questions that you get. So it's always helped me maintain perspective of even if I have a lot of information, there's always all of this information that I still don't know. So it's put me into a position of being a lifelong learner, whatever I do. And the second thing kind of drawing from that was that critical thinking skills were very, very important in criminology studies. We looked at things like, you know, the culture of control, the role of media in crime perceptions, different, you know, theories of deviance and how people become criminals and how our criminal justice system works. And there was a big movement in my university. And it's something that I really ended up subscribing to with restorative justice is maybe the best place for people isn't to throw them into prisons, but maybe to actually look at healing communities and maybe that would be more effective. So I really learned to develop critical thinking skills and to not just question everything to be a contrarian, but to really question my own assumptions and question the things that we think that we know to see, are they true? Are they always true? That was something, especially in customer success and customer enablement was so important because working with people is so dynamic. Oh, I love that segue. (laughs) And so when you came back to Canada, Mm -hmm. you moved into a role as a training manager and an account administrator for, is it pronounced Broco or Broco? Uh, Broco, yeah. Broco Broco. Glass Group. Yep. What was it about that role, that company that attracted you to it? Yeah. So it was a little bit opportunistic, a little bit nepotism because my dad worked at the company. He was actually the chief operating officer. He was not the one who offered me the job though. He did not want me working there. (laughs) Um, I ended up, I started working there to like on a three-week contract just to come in. When I was in Ireland, I was working in the accounts department for Onboard Alternish, which is the Irish nursing board. And so I had a little bit of accounting experience and they just had you know, some outstanding accounts, they needed someone to call. So I was like, I can do that. I can make a little bit of money because I ran out of money when I was traveling. (laughs) And I ended up hanging out there for quite a while. Broco was really cool because it was it's a glass company. So they are it was a glass company. It's been acquired. They had retail automotive glass locations, but they also did like commercial residential glass as well. So it was kind of broad in terms of locations. I worked in the head office and the head office was really tiny. It was a small company though. So I got to wear whatever hat I felt like wearing as long as no one else was wearing that hat. You know, I was considering network administration as a career path. So I got to work a lot with the network, became like the network manager, IT support person go to was out at stores like fixing computers, which no one ever expected from the blonde chick walking in. (laughs) Broco was where I was doing accounting. That was the main gig. So doing bookkeeping for the retail stores for I had, you know, an assigned number. But it was where I started developing training, both for the other accounting administrators like myself, also for other people to be able to do tech support if I wasn't in the office. And then also the store managers, because the store managers in automotive, you can imagine people in automotive stores aren't necessarily tech people who know how to work computer systems and email. (laughs) So I ended up creating training. And my CFO, who I had a dotted line reporting relationship with, she was like, this is what you should be doing. Like, you are really good at this. When I created a training manual, I was like, yeah, but that's like a hobby. It's not like an actual job because I didn't know the job existed. (laughs) But how did you even know how to do a training? 
So I, mean, I had to write a manual. So I ended up because I had so many jobs in university, I was used to seeing a lot of training. Right. I was used to being trained because I was constantly onboarding to all of these random jobs that I was taking. And for a lot of jobs that I had, and especially when I worked at for uh, for a little while at the Royal Bank of Canada, and my boss was really awesome and supportive. And she let me create my own job. And we all ended up being laid off because our jobs were all moving from Vancouver to Toronto. So to help support that, I ended up creating a lot of training materials to help the jobs actually transition. So it it ended up being something that I did at a lot of different jobs. Even when I was working at Winners, like I was a supervisor, so I was training people. So it had been a little bit of what I did, but I wasn't formally educated in instructional design. I was I was not an adult education expert at all, but I had just learned what worked and how things should look and what would actually support people with different levels of knowledge, especially when it came to software. So I ended up Again, because I just had the ability to put on these hats, I started to develop it there. So yeah, it was it was a really random thing of like, okay, like I'll just kind of figure this out and I'll make this look how it's looked for me and what I have thought has been helpful. And from what I've created in the past, I've gotten good feedback on. And that's how I ended up generating actually multiple training manuals there, both for store managers as well. The business was expanding into a franchise model. So we wanted to give franchisee value. So that ended up being something that I was creating as well. Love it. So you then moved into tech. Yes. So I like I like to describe like my time coming back from Ireland up until my first official training role as my career walkabout. Because I was just really figuring I had no idea. Like I I was like, I know I don't want to be a lawyer, but now what do I want to do with my life? And that's not something I was 24 when I moved back from Ireland and I was graduated. I had a degree I was supposed to know, right? So it was like this big quarter life crisis moment big quarter life crisis. So a big advantage of Broco was I got to try out so many different things. And I've always been a nerd. Like I've always been the person with the computer. I've been the person like trying to figure out how to code. So tech always felt like an exciting place for me to be. And Vancouver has a really cool little tech scene. So I knew I wanted to get there. So I left Broco and I actually took a job in IT recruitment, at like a, at an IT recruitment agency, right as the Great Recession was starting. <laughs> Timing is everything. It really, you know, <laughs> I started and things were great and then it just disintegrated. <laughs> so like every time that we hit like an economic blip, like what we're facing right now and like by blip, I'm like understatement of the year. You know, it really brings me back to that time where I remember the transition from everyone was hiring, hiring, you couldn't find talent. Companies were just throwing money at people because they needed this talent to people were like, well, we're not hiring anymore. And we've just cut 10% of our jobs and my job doesn't feel safe. Now, can you help me? So it really felt like, okay, the world is falling, which was a great time for me to decide that because I was in a recruitment sales role. So I was mostly doing sales. I was an account executive. But at that company, the thing that as I, the company is called SI Systems. They're, I think, only in Canada still. The thing that I think they did really great was actually the same thing that Lululemon did that I think was really great was that they really focused on the core of their business. So at SI Systems, the core of their business was recruitment. Lululemon, it was being in store, delivering an experience. So at Lululemon, even though I was in head office, everyone had one store shift a week if you were a full-time employee. And at SI Systems, everyone was recruiting. No matter what your job was, recruiting was part of your job. So you were sourcing candidates, you were interviewing candidates, you were prepping candidates. Because also as the account executive, I had the client relationship. I was the one having the conversations to know exactly what they would help differentiate them. But I didn't love the sales piece. And then the sales piece became really, really hard. And I was like, you know what? I thought I would love sales. Don't love sales. And that was when I realized that you know, what my early mentor that my old CFO Arlene had said of like this training, like, you're really good at this, this is what you should do. And one of the open recs that I was actually sourcing for before I left the recruitment agency was actually for technical trainers. And I was like, you know what, I don't want to be filling this role, I want to be in this role. So it's time for me to move on. So even though we were like smack dab in the middle of the Great Recession, like, again, the world just felt like it was falling down. I walked into my boss, and I handed in my notice. Before you had another job. I had nothing. I had nothing. (laughs) So interesting. So how long did it take you to find your next job at Absolute Software where you were an instructor of training services? And it was actually here, Jennifer, that you introduced e-learning for internal 
and external customers. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes the universe really supports you. So in order to quit, I knew I needed at least 90 days of financial resources to get me through to my next job. And I was like, I can pick up contract work. Like I had some options of if I need a plan B to just get some money, I can do that. So that gave me a bit of confidence. But I was like, I have 90 days. I have three months worth of, you know, rent, food, car payment, gas <laughs> kind of deal. And it took me 90 days. So I took some time after SI Systems to just decompress, hang out, spend time with friends, really get clear on that next step and what I was really looking for. And I started at Absolute Software like 90 days after. <laughs> Like just in the nick of time. So I was able to keep right covered without picking up any random contracts in between. It really felt universally aligned. And I was so fortunate there. My career would not have been what it is without my time at Absolute. I had the most phenomenal leader. Her name is KJ Kuypers. And she really helped dramatically change the trajectory of my career. At that point, I still was really like, I, I love software training. I love it. I To this day, I love software training. And I was like, I just want to do this forever. Like, I didn't think I wanted to be anything but a software trainer. But KJ really gave me the opportunity and space to, you know, develop myself professionally. So I really knew what I was doing when it came to instructional design. She gave me, you know, direct mentorship. She connected me with mentors. And she was also just really, really encouraging and allowed me to take risks to build my skills and to impact the company. So it was like that it was the perfect staging ground for what would happen next. And to this day, she's like one of my biggest cheerleaders. So what skills did KJ either teach you or put you in a position to learn that gave you the confidence that you could actually create e-learning courses, which, hello, are huge transferable skill. Yes. Which, and like back in 2009, like, E-learning was still so new. Like, I mean, training videos have been around for a while, but interactive e-learning was very different. And we needed to champion that into the organization because, you know, most companies aren't like customer education is our top priority. They're like customers paying us money is our top priority. And they don't necessarily connect customer enablement and customer success with customer money coming in the doors, right? (laughs) The first thing was she had the vision for e-learning. That wasn't something I was like, oh, yeah, like I want to do this. She really like started that and then, you know, allowed me to go and research different software providers and what we would need in order to get this up and running to to power through because we were in a monetized training model. So our team was supposed to be making money. We were supposed to be profitable. So she was really focused on the business side of advocating for training services, getting the structures that we need, getting the business support that we need. Whereas I was delivering the training and building out new trainings as well. And Also helping to build relationships with the sales team and things like that. Because one of the biggest leads for us ended up coming out of our training classes, of course, because an educated customer is a customer who wants more product. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. So there's a big red thread to pull here because you moved from absolute software from Canada Mm -hmm. to New York City to work for Salesforce. And you were promoted over a period of several years Mm -hmm. to become the general manager of customer enablement delivery. Is that another way of saying customer success? So customer enablement was, it was interesting. So I actually, I moved to America. I had to quit Absolute and move here and get a work authorization. I moved here because I got married to someone who lived here. I got to Salesforce by an acquisition of a company called Exact Target. And Exact Target, Salesforce my favorite companies I ever worked for. Just phenomenal people, phenomenal culture, really passionate people, and really, really smart people. So I have the best things to say about them. So it was an interesting point because I moved to the States in 2011. And customer success as a function was still fairly new to the market. And it's really interesting because customer success actually was really normalized by Salesforce. Because Salesforce noticed they were getting... It was easy for them to get signups. But if you've ever used Salesforce or CRM, it's extraordinarily powerful. It does so many things, but it's complicated to learn. So they realized that in order... like So customers were signing up, but then they weren't using the product because they didn't know how to use the product. And then they weren't renewing their contracts, right? Which is obviously a product in the SaaS model. So they started utilizing customer 
customer success to educate their customers and to make sure that they, you know, had goals, were hitting milestones. But when I moved, customer success was not what it is today by any means. Like there was definitely job roles for it. My role was I, I count customer enablement as part of customer success. It's a really, really big part of customer success. The only extension I would add between customer enablement and customer success is that customer success is generally going to be present throughout the lifetime of that contract. Whereas what I was doing custom enablement and what my team was doing custom enablement, that was dependent on the length of our contract with that customer, which was generally going to be for onboarding. We did have, you know, I built out service models to provide ongoing support and the customer success manager is going to be more is going to be focused on adoption but they're going to be mostly focused on the business metrics side of it they're not instructional designers they're not going to come in and like train 500 people to scale that is going to be the role of customer education but the two are very much the same because customer success relies on customer education right so they're very intertwined. And when I transitioned from customer enablement to customer success, it was very fluid because I think of customer success as customer enablement with the skills that I acquired in sales. You know what I love about this, Jennifer, is that when a student is in school and let's say they're majoring in education mm-hmm. or they're majoring in marketing or they're majoring in English lit. They do not connect the dots between the skills that they're learning and all the different applications in the working world. And I think even though customer success has been around now for well over a decade, I don't think it is a job function that students think about as an option. I think they tend to fall into it. What can you tell them about what is involved in customer success, customer enablement that could connect the dots between the skills that they've learned in the classroom and maybe in part-time gigs or whatever and the roles themselves? Yeah. So one of the most exciting things about customer success is it's still a very young role. Customer success will look very different from organization to organization. I have worked with companies and spoken with companies where customer success is basically sales. And their only job is to get in there, upsell, do all the things to drive revenue. I've talked to organizations where customer success doesn't do anything but like maybe lead capture. And then they hand it off to someone else who does that. So in terms of sales, it's going to be very different in terms of level of customer enablement and relationship development. It is going to range from company to company. I think the very common thing with customer success, though, is building the bonds and building the collaborative partnership. Because no matter what model of customer success is being deployed, that is going to be the consistency, your ability to establish relationships and open up communication. And I think really, no matter what you're studying, communication is something that is it is a key thing that we develop throughout our education, whether you study business, marketing, computer science, criminology, sociology, psychology, we're learning how to communicate effectively. And that is the most important thing in customer success. And then I also think it goes back to that, the critical thinking part of it, of the thing that I I love most about customer success. And the reason I would tell anyone to consider a career in customer success is that it is such a varied day. Like you're never going to have two days that look the same. You will never have two clients that look the same. Because you're dealing with individuals, you're going to learn so much about businesses because you get to work in different industries with different size companies that have different functions that function in different ways. So your ability to actually like gain knowledge in terms of operations and operationalization of your product is going to be incomparable. So it's like really cool. Like, and I loved this in customer enablement because I did custom enablement. At, Which like, is exactly what? Like Salesforce. Custom enablement was I went in as part of the professional services engagement to onboard the client. And we mapped out what their workflow would be with our actual product, with their unique implementation of the product. So we would decide this is what most complex software products there was. I worked in marketing cloud. There was like 10 different ways to send an email. But which way are you going to send an email? And which way am I going to show your users? And then 
for your user groups, what do they need to know? So it was a window into the marketing organizations of countless like Fortune 500 companies for me. It was amazing. I basically, I call myself an honorary marketer because I got to work with so many phenomenal marketers in that role and see how they operated, understand the agency landscape. There was so much to it. So you end up just learning a ton as much as you're teaching. And I also think customer success is really interesting because people tell you the thing that they think that they want, but your job is really to decipher what they really want and what they really need. And that is such a unique challenge to do because I think like, you know, as much of our job is to communicate, there's so many different communication gaps that can occur coming our way. Because if someone's not happy and they're going to be shopping around for another vendor, they're probably not going to tell you that unless you have a very well-established relationship with trust where there's reasons that they're communicating to you in advance. Most of the time, they're going to shop and they're going to quietly leave. And then it's going to be like a fire drill within your company and you know, heads are going to be rolling and you're going to be nervous if that customer doesn't renew. So it's always looking like beneath the surface of what are people not telling me? What are they not saying? And how can I proactively find ways for them to be more successful? And this is where I think the through line also comes in for me from customer enablement, customer success to what I do now in career success was my question I always asked myself was how can I get my customer promoted? Because if I was going to get my customer promoted, my product was going to be very sticky. They're not going to get promoted based on the implementation and utilization of my product, get promoted and then be like, no, there's no value here. (laughs) So it was always about building that promotion story for you. How do I make you look really good? Because if you look really good, I'm going to look really good. I love it. And we're going to hop over to what you're doing now in one minute. I just want to kind of button things up here Mm -hmm. and lay out because I looked up customer success online and tell me if these soft skills and then technical skills resonate with you. Because we've already mentioned in terms of soft skills, the interpersonal Mm -hmm. skills, communication being hugely important. I think what Jennifer was alluding to there was listening skills. Yes. That was the other big one. Empathy, putting yourself in your customer's shoes, problem solving, motivation, creativity. Mm -hmm. That's also creative problem solving and time management. So those are some of the soft skills. Yeah. Technical skills, obviously sales, onboarding, recruiting or talent acquisition, which is actually human resources, team building, management. I kind of see those as soft skills, but they put them in the technical skills. And then they say CSM software. So just being able to understand different Mm -hmm. types of software. Anything else that you would add? No, I think the ability to navigate CRM and customer success software, which is typically going to sit on top of your CRM software, is going to be the most technical, technically important. It's interesting that they have things like recruitment because most customer success managers, most companies now, like there is that series of interviews where you're interviewing with the manager, you interview with some of the team, but that is like talent acquisition will not be the top thing that a customer success manager is going to be doing at least early on in their career. But I think with team building, a lot of team building, the skills that go into team building, I, I would consider it to be soft skills. But I also think that a lot of those overlap with relationship building with customers. Ultimately, I believe that everyone is your customer. So I believe that your boss is your customer. I believe your coworkers are your customer. Your customers are your customer. Your business partners are your customers. Everyone around you is your customer. Put another way, you are selling at all times, even if your title doesn't say sales or account executive. Sales (laughs) is just a part from the moment that you sit across somebody in an interview, whether it's over Zoom or in person to when you start your job. So Jennifer, when did the light bulb go off for you that those transferable skills that you had been honing as a trainer and as a manager and eventually as a global manager of customer success actually could apply to becoming a career bestie, to train and teach women employees in the workforce how to become successful in their careers. Yeah. Yeah. 
So my last corporate job of love corporate, it was at a startup called Forder, who's now like full stop unicorn status. There are another, again, you mentioned them earlier. They're such a cool company. And there I was the global director of customer success. And I, on paper, this was a fantastic opportunity. There was like they were in hyper growth mode. The leadership team is amazing. And I just didn't want to be doing my job anymore. Because what happened over the years, and especially as I was growing in my career, I was learning, I benefited from a lot of phenomenal mentors in my career, which I felt really lucky because I think especially as a woman in tech, there's not so many female leaders in tech. And I worked predominantly under female leadership, which was so lucky. And I was able to learn so much. And I really wanted to you know, pass that forward for everyone around me. So I ended up informally mentoring people, formally mentoring, building out informal training programs and formal training programs to help the people within the organizations I was at, like in growing, you know, at one tech startup, I was, I I collaborated with someone to build like the the internship program to make sure that our interns were like becoming professionally successful and setting the stage for their professional success. And I just had so much more passion for that at that stage in my career and stage in my life. Of the again, the question I was always asking myself was, how do I get my customer promoted? But that wasn't always what they were coming to me with. Most of my customers, I ended up building the relationship that they were going to be asking me that kind of question. (laughs) But it wasn't the focal point. And it really was what I became passionate about. And I realized that in order to do it in the way that I wanted to do it, I was going to have to be outside of a company to reach the scale that I really wanted to reach. And again, throwing this back to wanting to build more justice in the world of that was my motivation for becoming a lawyer and criminal defense specifically, because there's a large marginalized population that is being targeted by the criminal justice system. And I really wanted to help the people that were being marginalized in the tech industry. So if you are not Chad, as I like to call him, you don't have the foot up in the industry. You know, women are still underrepresented. People of color are still underrepresented. And I knew that I could do something that could help build, even if it was just a little bit more justice and a little bit more equity, but that was my purpose. And that was what I needed to be doing with my career. So that was my transition out. And it started with a YouTube channel and has grown from there. So beautiful. Speaking of videos, some of your videos have gotten hundreds of thousands of views And one video, at least one video in particular, (laughs) has gotten way over a million views. The title, Coworkers Are Not Your Friends. (laughs) This topic clearly touches a nerve uh, for me too, because when you're a professional, you often end up spending more time with your coworkers than you do with your family and certainly with your non-work friends. So it's natural for them to become your friends. Why do you disagree, Jennifer? Yeah. So I think like, especially for early career professionals, like we're used to making friends at school. We're used to making friends in our extracurriculars. We're used to making friends in our part-time jobs. And so when we transition into the work world, that is something that is very natural. And then we pair it with the normalization of social networks within organizations. You know, companies saying, we're like a family here. There is the after work team building events. There's the lunches. They're really encouraging you to be there all of the time and for your life to center on work because it's benefiting the company. And I don't think that that's inherently an awful thing. I don't think that you should never ever be friends with your coworkers. Like some of my best friends are people (laughs) that I've worked with. So take it for what it is. But I think that there's, as a general rule, most of the people that you work with are circumstantial relationships. When you leave that company, there may be friends that you maintain and become lifelong friends. But at the end of the day, most of those people are going to fade away. And some of them are going to fade away quite quickly. And I think the reason why that video in particular really resonated with people is that coworkers often become your competition. So even if you don't feel like you're in competition with your colleague, you feel like they're your friend, there's, you know, there's enough room for all of us to be successful. And that's a true statement, but not everyone feels that way. 
And so I think a lot of people, unfortunately, learn the hard way that coworkers can be competition, or at least think that you're a competition, and that those friendships might end up going really sideways. And there's a lot of hurt that can end up happening. So it's not that we can never ever be friends with coworkers. It's just that we need to appreciate the relationships and the power dynamics that are at place in the corporate space so that we can stage ourselves for success. Because the last thing that you want to be doing at work is oversharing something to someone that you think is a friend only to become the buzz in the office about it. That is not the situation that you want to be in. It is not nice to deal with. And it's much easier to avoid than it is to recover. A hundred percent. If you had to pick a few of your favorite videos and career advice to offer our college students who are gearing up for graduation in 2023 before they enter the workforce, what would you want them to know, Jennifer, to help them start their careers on the right foot? Yeah. So I think the biggest one, and this is my favorite one, and I think, I think that they're always underrated on my channel. My videos about workplace politics and getting comfortable with workplace politics is really important. And I know, especially for a lot of young women, it's like, well, politics is dirty. Politics is bad. I don't want to peddle in politics. I'm not going to play that game. But if you're not playing the game, you're losing the game. You just admit defeat. And the thing is, is that politics get a bad rap because we do see some dirty politics. We see undermining. We see idea thievery. Like we see a lot of nasty things. We see the awful gossip, right? But politics isn't always bad. Ultimately, politics is about building relationships and influence in the organization. And this can be done organically, it can be done authentically, and it can be done positively as long as you know how to approach it. So I want people to get comfortable with the fact that politics are part of our human interaction. And all that you're trying to do is optimize those interactions to create a positive impact for you, for your coworkers, and for your company. So what example could you offer maybe from your own career experience or from something you observed that you think is a way that a young person could be politically astute without it feeling icky? Yeah. So I think that there is a couple of ways. So I think first and foremost understand that the quality and sentiment in your relationships can make your life a lot easier and can make the lives of the people around you a lot easier. And so just like with my customers, you know, how do I make you look good? How can I help the people around me? How can I add value? And that value, this is the thing that I hear from young, like early career professionals all the time. I don't have any value. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, this is my first job. Like, I don't know what, how am I supposed to going up to someone and asking that when you don't know something, going and asking a question to someone that you admire, that you know, has the answer. That's a value to them. Yes, you're getting help and you're getting the answer and they're helping you, but you are acknowledging and validating them at the same time. You are providing value. You are increasing their confidence and you're helping them establish themselves in their career. And this is one of the things that like, and it's definitely a story. And I know it's a story for a lot of women of like, I'm not going to ask for help. Like, I don't need help. I don't want to bother anyone. That used to be me. It's still me sometimes. Yeah, because you, (laughs) at least for me, I felt like it would be admitting that I wasn't able to do the job. And so instead, I felt I had to fake it. Yep. I'm going to fake it until I make it. And then you end up you know, not knowing what you know, like, and maybe you figured it out correctly. Chances are you figured it out correctly. Like, you know, I'm sure, Andrew, I know you are very intelligent. I know the listeners of your podcast are very intelligent. So I'm sure that like there's high accuracy, but you know, there's a lot of time that can be saved. You can be building relationships along the way. And then it can also just be, you know, you're not going to question yourself later on down the road. And I think when we default to faking it to make it, we feel like frauds when we get there. Like, I think that's such a creator of imposter syndrome is like, I'm faking it, I'm faking, I'm faking it. But when that's the inner story, that inner story becomes really, really sticky. So you successfully do it and you are successful and you know the things and you're great at your job, but it generates a lot of self-doubt later on. So I think there's huge advantages for us to like like swallow our pride and be like, you know, I don't know what I don't know. But also early in your career, you're not supposed to know. 
Yes. And like we, we put so much yes. pressure on ourselves, but like, it's like, no, you are not supposed to know anything right now. Now is the time for asking all of the questions, all of the questions, because not only do you get the answers, but again, you, and it's such a great opportunity to reach out to the people around you, build relationships with your boss, build relationships with your coworkers. One of the best things that happened to me when I worked at Exact Target was when I was onboarding, I was fully remote. And I just didn't know who to ask questions to. Like I was part of a bigger team, but I was the only one in custom enablement at the time because like I was a new function. And my manager set me up on a rotation and he was like, okay, with the solutions architects, the solution architects in our team, what you'll do is we'll pick one a week that you're going to go to with all of your questions. So I kept my list of questions and I would ping them at the end of the day. We would set up a meeting at the end of the week and just talk through everything. And like the questions can be totally banal. Sometimes the questions were really good, (laughs) but it gave me an opportunity and it gave me a reason to reach out to those people that I wouldn't have been reaching out to at that stage of onboarding that, and those relationships, a lot of those solutions architects, I didn't end up working with on a lot of projects, but they ended up becoming resources that when I was creating more technical training, I was able to go to for validation and I was able to position them and to give them, you know, more visibility and they were able to help me. So there was these win-wins were created. So I think this is something that you can even, when you are new to your job, new in your career, have that conversation with your manager and be like, Hey, like, I heard this tip to ask for meetings with the team. Would that be something that we can coordinate? Because usually it's like 30 minutes a week. It's not going to be a huge time commitment, but it gives you a touch point and it gives you answers and it gives you relationships. And this is the other thing when you're coming into a new job. Andrea, how many times did you feel like, Oh, no one, everyone knows each other. I just don't know anyone. No one wants to know me, but people want to know you too. They sure do. And actually... What I came to realize later in my career is that if you do take Jennifer's advice and ask questions, maybe even set up weekly check-ins with different team members to ask them questions, you actually come out looking smarter Mm -hmm. because you are asking questions and surfacing what you don't know. And the unspoken assumption then is, she understands all the other stuff because she's willing and self-confident enough to come forward saying, I don't understand this. Yes. Oh, and this totally goes back to like the thing that I learned in the training world. And I learned this really, really quickly. If no one had questions, no one knew what was happening. Everyone was completely lost because you have to have like a certain level of knowledge in order to know what your questions are. So being able to ask questions is validating that you are learning and then it's validating your actual learnings and filling the gaps. So that was something if I have it's still to this day, if I have a session, I always leave if I run an online workshop, they're usually like 60, 90 minutes, I will leave 60, 90 minutes for Q&A at the end. Because if I did my job well, I'm gonna have questions to fill up that entire time period. If I didn't do my job well, I'm gonna hear crickets at the end. (laughs) They don't understand enough yeah. Yeah. to be able to ask a question. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, okay, I'm overwhelmed. I have no idea, but I'm not going to call because here's the thing. And this goes back to the confidence that you mentioned. If I don't know anything, I feel like I'm going to expose myself if I ask a question as not knowing anything and being the stupid person in the room. Yes. Thinking that, well, maybe they already answered that question. And if I ask it now, it's going to seem like I was spacing out in the middle of the present. And that may be the case, my friends. It happens to all of us. But the thing is, if most of your questions are not like that, you're going to come out looking smarter and becoming smarter as a result. Okay. Let us now talk about the guest of honor, your new book entitled Career Glow Up, How to own your ambition and create the career of your dreams. I've read it cover to cover, Jennifer, and absolutely loved it and will be writing an Amazon review. What I love is that it is so user friendly mm-hmm. and it is beautiful. It really is. It mm-hmm. is like a journal. Is that what you were yes. going for? Yes. So the publisher that I worked with, they do work for format. 
And I originally wrote this as a traditional business book. And they actually approached me as I was like finishing my first draft. And they're like, Hey, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I actually have a friend who published another book called About Burnout with them. And I loved her book. And it, so I describe this as like business book meets journal. Because Andrea, how many times have you read a book and been like, that book was so good. There was so many good points and then implemented zero of them and forgotten them all right away. So what sold me was that this was not a book that you would just read, be like, oh, that was good. And then it wouldn't change your life. I wanted to change your life. And it's not super heavy lifting. Everything is broken down so intricately. Like I spent months curating it down into exactly what you need to do, only what you need to do and making sure that you have the space prompts and knowledge in order to fully implement it. So when you work through this book, it ends up becoming your career success guide. And it's something that you can look to, you can refer to, and it gives you the action steps because that was one thing that I've always turned to books for answers. I'm just, I'm one of those nerds and who doesn't love books anyways. But one of the things that frustrated me was I read a lot of business books for women, like back earlier in my career. And there's so many good books on the market now and not, you know, totally be like, oh, like these were awful. I learned a lot from the books that I did read. And there was a lot that I did end up taking and gleaning and things like that. But a lot of them left me with like, this is what you like, how many books have we read that it's like, you need to find a mentor. Okay, how do I find a mentor? And I remember reading and I again, I don't want to like, say anything bad about it, because I it really inspired a lot of my ambition was the book lean in and it talked about the importance of having sponsors and mentors, but like you never go and ask, but it never actually told you how to get them in the first place <laughs> and what they would look like. Because one of the things that I didn't realize was that mentorships and sponsorships are not formal agreements. I have many mentors that I've never used the word mentor to them to their face. They've never used mentee or protege to my face. Maybe they wouldn't agree. Maybe it's one sided. <laughs> but I didn't realize like how informal those would be, but that the most effective relationships were going to be the ones that would emerge. Again, like my theme is always authentic and organic because if something feels fake, if I am pretending to do this, if I'm showing up in a way that doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel good and then I don't do it. So this book is focused on finding the ways and the approaches and the things that do feel good. And you'll want to do them. Absolutely. And what I especially love is that there are a lot of opportunities in the book throughout Career Glow Up to cultivate self-love. And we're actually doing this interview on Valentine's Day. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! Which is, in my opinion, about self-love first and to help you build success habits. Yeah. Yeah. Know how you show up every day. Like it's the little things that you do. And I think it's the, it's your expectations and the way that you think about yourself and what you're bringing to the table. Like your expectations become your reality. So if I expect really good things, if I expect to have a high impact, if I expect to be visible in my organization, then I'm going to become those things because my actions are going to be in alignment with my inner beliefs. And I know that's like hippy dippy woo woo, but it really works. Like it, it's grounded in psychology as well. But that's one of the things that like, I wish that they had taught us in school to really focus on these things. Like I didn't know to keep lists of things of accomplishments and progress, and then what to do with those lists when I started making them. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that I didn't think of until I thought of them that would have saved me so much time. So as I said earlier, like, this book is the book that I needed when I arrived in New York, when I realized like, you know what, I think I actually want to do something with my career. And it wasn't become a CEO. I wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to become like this big, important person. But I realized I wanted to make a big impact. And I realized I wanted to do more than just be someone I wanted to be someone I wanted to have relationships. I wanted to do good in my industry. I wanted to do good for my company. I wanted to do good for my customers. And so this is exactly what I needed at that stage in my career that would have made my climb up the corporate ladder even faster. I actually think it is the book that any young woman could use at the very beginning of her career as a model. It's almost like having a mentor in a book. Yes. Because yes. this mentor is you, is guiding them through yes. best practices 
to cultivate self-love, build success habits, build those lists of successes and whatnot that will help you evolve in your career. Yeah. And building self-awareness of the ways that you're awesome. Because I think especially for women, we're so socialized to focus on what's wrong with us. Like my body's the wrong size. I don't make enough money. I don't have the right handbag. Like we are so focused and we're so trained to focus on the things that we don't have that we really need to consciously and intentionally focus on the things that we do have and what we are bringing to the table. Because I think that this is true for every single person, not just women, blanket statement, but I think especially women. I think when you know how freaking awesome you are, you are not going to settle for anything less than extraordinary in your career and in your life. You're not going to take a little ball offer. You're not going to take a crappy job that doesn't treat you well. There's going to be so much that you avoid, (laughs) but there's going to be so much that you get out of it as well. You actually call it our unique awesomeness quotient. Let me try that again. Unique (laughs) awesomeness quotient or UAQ. How can our listeners, Jennifer, figure out what their UAQ is, especially someone who is early in her career journey or hasn't even started it yet? Yeah. So the UAQ is essentially the nexus of things that you are naturally good at things that pe- that people already notice about you. So think about compliments that you've gotten, questions that people are asking you already, things that people come to you for, as well as your interests. And it's in the middle of those things that you're going to find your UAQ. And it's not just one thing. It's not just one skill. Like I was never going to be the best customer trainer in the entire world, but I could be the best customer enablement professional who could build scalable and profitable training success organizations. That was something that I can position myself to do based on and with technical ability. So it, it shifts with you. It grows with you over your career. Everything in this book, I still do myself, <laughs> even though, you know, I'm, I'm well into my career now. Again, not there in years, but it, it is in the, the nexus. So obviously, if you want to really deep dive into it, it's, I have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to it. I do have a starter kit for anyone who's curious about it. You can get it on my website. Beautiful. And the website is? CapDecaSolutions.com. And that's spelled C-A-P-D-E-C solutions.com. Okay, great. I know you basically wrote a whole book about how to do this, Jennifer, but top line, what are one or two tips that you can offer here, right here, right now to help Mm -hmm. our listeners start building a reputation, start building a personal brand Mm -hmm. to become an in-demand professional? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to answer this. Uh, citing two of my favorite mantras that I use all the time so that you can use them as well. So the first one is going to derive from what we were just talking about. Confidence is contagious. The more aware you are, the more proud you are, and the more confident you are in your skills, your abilities, your experience, and what you're bringing to the table, the more confidence other people are going to have in you. If you don't believe me, look look up in the organization because chances are there's someone who has an exceptional amount of confidence with a mediocre to questionable level of competence that people have a lot of trust in. Because when you trust yourself, other people trust you. And that's really what self-confidence is, is self-trust. There's so much overlap there. So confidence is contagious. The more confident you are in yourself, the more confident other people will be in you, the more opportunities they're going to get. And then the second one throws back to the conversation surrounding asking for help. Because I don't know about you, Andrea, but I really like, I was like, I'm an independent woman. I can do this on my own. And how many of us have that story? of I can do this by myself. I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody. Success is not solitary. And there are people that will support you on the way. There are people that want to help you on the way. You will help people on the way. We rise together. That is something that I deeply and truly believe. So building up a network of advocates of people that are going to help you and people that you help is going to change your life. Mm, Love it. And I want to say that success and failure are not mutually exclusive. So let me ask you, Jennifer, a question that I try to ask all time for coffee guests, and that is to share a time in your professional life when you failed or face planted. And what's most important with this example 
is how you persevered. And if there was a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Yeah, I could be here all day telling you about the number of times that I have failed. I am a highly risk averse individual. I've also failed a ton. Because it, it, the thing is, is that if you never fail, you never succeed. So there, there is this continuum. You can't have one without the other. You can't have love without hate. You can't have success without failure. So my failures have been mundane, but really scary, like deleting an entire database. Oh my God. <laughs> with a year's worth of accounting data that wasn't backed up. Oh shit. Because I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. And I got suspended for that one. And thank goodness someone had randomly, the CFO had randomly backed up just that one database by chance. Otherwise, I was going to be volunteering for free to manually re-enter a year's worth of data, <laughs> hopefully with a high level of accuracy because <laughs> the books need to, to land at the same place at the end. I'm also someone who's been through multiple layoffs. And I know that's something that a lot of people are going through right now. And one of the layoffs was because I was a terrible fit for the organization. We thought that we were aligned when I got started. It was a startup that I was at. I believed in the mission. I believed in the leadership. But as things grew, like there was just this veer off. And I didn't feel good there. And I wasn't leaving. And so they made the decision for my CEO made the decision for me. And that was so hard because I was like, yeah, like I'm this executive working mom. I make a lot of money. I'm like this badass in New York. And then I wasn't. That was like, I didn't know how I would, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. How do I recover from this? There's no recovery from this. But the thing with failure is the only way that you fail is that you quit. You, that you just walk away. You, instead of getting up, you lie there. And that was not somewhere that I was willing to lie because there's always going to be another option. A layoff is never permanent. There's always another job. Your reputation is never over. There's nothing that you can do that's irrecoverable in this life as long as you are living. And so just know that like setbacks, adversity, it happens to absolutely everyone. You are going to F up. There's going to be times that people don't like you. You are going to make mistakes. You will fail miserably, spectacularly, sometimes publicly. Each one of those is a learning opportunity for you. And as long as you look, and again, going back to that critical thinking, to the critical thinking skills of what can I take from this? What's being presented to me here? Yeah, it sucks. But like, where do I go from here? Then you're going to keep on moving forward and you're going to keep on moving upward. I agree with every single word. And as someone who was fired twice in her 40s, I can attest to the fact that I truly, sincerely look back on those two failings, firings as having been incredible gifts yes. in my life. They were not gifts in front of mind at the time. They absolutely sucked. But I have come to realize that it was the universe's way of pushing me, maybe pulling me yes. in a direction that I actually needed to move. Yes. So I have this thing and I talk about it with everyone who will listen. I believe that the universe gives us signs. And when we ignore them, it starts giving shoves, right? And then at some point, if you're not listening to the universe, it's going to shove you off the cliff. I am someone who needs to be shoved off the cliff. <laughs> Me too, clearly. <laughs> uh, all right. So we are right at the edge of the cliff at the end of this interview. I just have one final question to ask you, Jennifer. If you could go back to college, back to Simon Fraser and do it yep. all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what yep. advice would you give yourself? Study business. <laughs> no, you know, I think, that was something that uh, when I decided not to be a lawyer, I was like, I really wish I had done a business degree. I didn't know what a business degree was until many years later. So, you know, a little bit of retrospect of like, yeah, like even doing a minor there would have been helpful. I just didn't know. But I have no real regrets because I think that everything I again, I, I believe in the universe paving a path for us and sometimes giving us shoves and nudges so that we're along the right way. And I think the only thing that I would tell myself is to be more conscientious of, again, the 
the progress and the successes along the way, because that was something that I didn't pay attention to until my 30s. But I really think it would have helped me, especially in my 20s, as I was establishing my career to be clear on what I was bringing to the table. Jennifer is the author of the fabulous new book, new workbook, whatever you want to call it, Career Glow Up, How to Own Your Ambition and Create the Career of Your Dream. She is also your career bestie. Jennifer, where can our listeners find you? Yep. So if you're interested in the book, I would point you to careerglowupbook.com and it has all of the places that you can order it there. And then if you want to hang with me, I live on YouTube. I have a ton of videos over there. So if you just go to YouTube, put in Jennifer Brick, my face is good to show up there. And you can also find her on LinkedIn where you absolutely have to give her a follow. Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for your authenticity, for your honesty, for your passion and for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.